grace and mercy. Well, Jonathan lived in extraordinary times, and God used him as a means of great blessing to others. He would travel and preach and travel and preach. And one of the most famous sermons he preached in many different places was called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. That's well worth your time reading. You can find it in multiple places online. But here's the point I want to make. Jonathan Edwards, around the ages of 19 or 20, was finishing his master's degree at Yale. And he had, he'd been there since he was 13, still a young man. But then he wrote something remarkable. He came up with 70 resolutions in 1722 and 1723. And he, we've got them in this book nowadays that we can, you can easily find for just a couple of dollars. You can find them online too as well. We know what resolutions are, right? We often hear about New Year's resolutions. I resolve to lose weight. I resolve to get fit. I resolve to read my Bible more regularly. I wonder if you did any of that in 2022. Three months in, how are you doing? You see, are you still resolved, thus proving that you were truly resolved in the first place? Jonathan was finishing his education. He's preparing for ministry. He's on that watershed, moving from education to the world of work and and service for God. And he sat down and he, he penned 70 statements, kind of a personal mission statement, but based on Scripture. Advice to himself, guidelines, reminders. How should I live intentionally rather than just drift through life and see what happens to me? How can I plan? How can I set goals to use my life for my Savior, to honor Him him in all that I do? How can I live for God? How can I please Him? How can I deal with my remaining sin? How can I obey the commands of God to prove, not earn my salvation? How can I grow in grace? How can I grow in Christ-likeness? With Christ's help, how can I not be mediocre in my Christian life? How can I use the gifts and talents that God has given me? Every believer has gifts. I'm sure you've heard the common statement, if you aim at nothing, you're sure to hit it. And Jonathan meditated on his short life up until now and thought about what he was going to achieve for the glory of God in the future should God spare him. And he wrote in his notes that he should read all 70 of these at least once a week. He took them seriously, and I would encourage you to do the same. It's a healthy activity. Your devotion and love and obedience to God is something that each of us needs to be regularly reminded of. Let me give you just five of those 70. Number one, resolved that whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory, uh, to do whatever I think to be most to God's glory and to my own good. And number three, resolved if I shall fall and grow dull so as to neglect to keep any part of these resolutions, to repent of all that I can remember when I come to myself again. Number 28, resolved to study the Scriptures so steadily, constantly and frequently, as that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of the same. Number 30, resolved to strive to my utmost every week, to be brought higher in religion and to a higher exercise of grace than I was the week before. And then fifthly, number 56, resolved never to give over, nor in the least to slacken my fight with my corruptions, however unsuccessful I may be. There's so much more, and I encourage you to to find it. But I wonder, do you have any of that seriousness or determination in your walk with God. Now, I want us to turn to another man in an altogether different generation that God used remarkably as a means of great blessing to others, this time in Scripture, in Ezra chapter 7. And I want to compare that example with the generations before Ezra that did not follow God in the same way. 
or so much by way of introduction. Here's our first and briefest of just two points this evening, using the example of the the people of Israel and the people of Judah. Point number one, unfaithfulness to God's Word. Unfaithfulness to God's Word. So consider with me some background as we remind ourselves of the times and events surrounding and before the life of Ezra. This is one of those occasions where we could spend our whole time doing that, looking at the background of of the passage, the very beginning of our reading. It referred to the context after these things. Well, what things? Well, the book of Ezra is right alongside the book of Nehemiah. We don't know for sure who wrote these, these accounts or exactly when they were written, but we find out that they were contemporaries. As God brought a formerly rebellious people back to the promised land. However, Ezra came back to Jerusalem 13 or so years before Nehemiah did. And, and this continues the story of the people of Israel who had been taken captive in the nation of Babylon. Back in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse four, verses 14 through 25, and, and in other places, God had warned that if the people broke the covenant or the agreement, that another nation would make them into slaves. It was apostasy. They abandoned, even renounced their beliefs, and their God. Verse 17 in that passage in Jeremiah chapter 2 says, Have you not done this to yourself? By your forsaking the Lord your God, when He led you in the way. It's their fault. Even though a gracious God warned them over and over through the prophets, they did become unfaithful. And that's where the Assyrians and the Babylonians come into the picture. You remember how Nebuchadnezzar, around 605 BC, he took the cream of the people to Babylon over a period of time. You remember Daniel and Ezekiel, and then Jerusalem was was invaded. The temple destroyed, the contents are taken away, and they had 70 years in captivity. And during this whole period... The people of Israel weren't able to worship as God had commanded them in his temple, in his house. But then in Jeremiah chapter 29, it's worth turning there, Jeremiah chapter 29, it says this from verse 10. For thus says the Lord... When 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me When you search for me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. So at the end of 2 Chronicles, we actually find a decree a binding order, a declaration by Cyrus, king of Persia. And he'd gone and defeated those Babylonians. Somehow the Israelites found some favor in the eyes of this king. Isaiah had prophesied this in Isaiah 44 verse 28. There God very specifically says, almost 200 years before it actually happened, with a specific name, he said this, It is I who says of Cyrus, he wasn't even born yet, Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built and of the temple, your foundation will be laid. 150 years before it happened, Isaiah perfectly prophesied it through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And it shows us once again that nations and kings rise and fall 
but the word of the Lord endures forever. The Babylonians had taken the people captive. They were the superpower of the area, but not anymore. They'd come crashing down, and now Cyrus, king of Persia, is in power, and God uses him. He works through him. My friends, God always remains faithful to his people. Whatever the threat is in any generation. And in fact, this narrative, if you were to read even more broadly, confirms over and over and over again that even these ungodly kings are used by Almighty God in his sovereignty. He can overcome any obstacle. And he is the one that brings restoration 70 years later. And Second Chronicles 36 explains what happens. It says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, we just read that, the Lord stirred up the spirit of King Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put it in writing saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all of his people, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. And this is what we call the post-exilic period, after the exile. This horrible period is finally coming to an end. The dawn is here. But it's, it's slow in coming to reality. This decree was given around 539 BC, and the people are, are moving back into the land, rejoining that remnant who had stayed there. Zerubbabel brought that first group in, in those first couple of chapters of Ezra, but there's no king. And the exiles bring things with them to rebuild the temple. And that's important, of course. But, but we know that God wants more than mere burnt sacrifices. He wants the heart of. He wants the worship of and the devotion of the people. That's the most important rebuilding that we see here in this passage. That's the most important rebuilding that needs to take place. God is not interested in the people returning to the status quo, the same as before. No, that exile was punishment. And should send a real message to the people who apostatized. They turned away from God in that previous generation, despite all those warnings beforehand. Remains an illustration for us in our nation, in our church, in our personal lives. Don't drift from God. Be resolved not to. Be resolved to grow closer and deeper in your worship and devotion. Be intentional about it. But if you do fall away and you are taken into a foreign land, so to speak, you are most definitely warned that it will be destructive. It's awful. But there is hope of restoration if you cry out to God. In chapter 3, they build the altar and the foundations and they are therefore able to bring sacrifices to God once again. And then in chapter 4 of Ezra, they stop because of some Samaritans opposing them until chapters 5 and 6 with the help and encouragement of Zechariah and Haggai. It starts again and finally finishes. Ultimately takes them 23, 24 years to rebuild the temple so they can again celebrate Passover together at the end of chapter 6. But much more is still to be done as we enter chapter 7. And right there at that dividing point, we have a jump forward in time. Interestingly, it's around now in, in this gap between chapters 6 and 7 that the events of the book of Esther take place. It's now a generation later, almost 60 years, when Ezra and a new group of immigrants returned to Jerusalem by the command of yet another ungodly king. He's a pagan king, Artaxerxes I, around 458 BC. It's the next step in the people of Israel coming back. It's the next step in true, authentic worship being instituted fully. 
So I hope you now understand some of the the timeline of, of what happened, but also why it happened. The people of Israel and Judah had turned their backs on God, and now they were in the process of being restored. They They were unfaithful. They weren't following God's Word. They were a bad example of people going through the motions, not taking the worship of God and their devotion to Him and His Word seriously at all. And we as the people of God can certainly do that, drifting, wandering, saved, but in a daze with no resolve to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, as the Apostle Paul tells the Philippians. Not earning our salvation, but proving its authenticity. Showing on the electrocardiogram machine that there is a heartbeat. may have been that many of the people at the time were not saved, though. Never regenerated. Relying on the fact that they had some special blessing as being part of this this people, but no experiential or personal involvement themselves. And I wonder if, if that's you here, coming each week, sitting among the people of God, singing the hymns, but not really taking full part, because you've not yet done serious business with God yourself, for your own soul. Jesus Christ is not yet known to you personally as your Savior. You're not just unfruitful. You're dead. You're dead. Maybe you come along with your parents. Maybe you're that child who knows all the questions, the answers to the questions in Sunday school, but you've not yet professed faith in Christ. Maybe you watch others when they take communion. Maybe you see others getting baptized and you hear their testimony. You hear what Christ has done for them and to them. And you wonder, will that ever be me? Of course it can be. You need to come to him in repentance and faith. And I ask you, are you you concerned about your sin? Do you see how this holy God requires your whole life, your whole devotion? We don't see, we see, don't we, in these verses, even in the Old Testament, that this is no small matter. God is looking for your whole heart, your whole life, nothing half-hearted, nothing lukewarm. You need to bring everything you are to God and hand it over, asking for forgiveness from your sin, turning from it, and you will be shown mercy and grace that none of us here deserve, and then He will be your Lord and Savior. And then you follow him. And so firstly, that was our first point. We've seen unfaithfulness to God's word. And now secondly, and unsurprisingly, faithfulness to God's word. Faithfulness to God's word. And it's here that we turn our attention away from the people generally to Ezra specifically. So who was Ezra? His name can be translated, Jehovah has helped. He's a man who has grown up in Babylon but was a worshipper of the true God, resolved to be equipped and used by him. Some call him another Moses, leading the people back into the land. His job was that of a scribe. They read and they write and they keep accurate records. They often teach. He's an expert in the law. He's a descendant of the first high priest Aaron, verse 5 told us. It's important to notice two things in verse 6. In Ezra chapter 7. Firstly, that he had the authority of the king. But more importantly, that the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. The text repeats that later in verse 9 and then then in verse 20. When Ezra takes courage in that fact, he acknowledges the steadfast love of his God shown to him. And Ezra is being used by God to bring bring restoration. He's determined to bring God's Word, God's law, as the authority, and apply it to the lives of the people. Because what he finds when he comes is intermarrying outside the people of God. He finds idolatry when he arrives. 
They were backsliding again. And if we glance more broadly than just our verses, we we find out a little bit more about him. We're told in chapter 7, verses 21 and 25, that he has wisdom. He has a mission that's repeated and emphasized in, in different ways, that he wants to teach the commands and decrees of the Lord across chapter 7 through 9. We find that he has confidence in the Word of God. We find that he wants to bring that to the people and impact them with this living word. But back in our chapter, in chapter 7, verses 7 through 9, we have recorded for us those, that, that four-month trek from Babylon to Jerusalem. Not easy, not without danger. In fact, chapter 8 talks of needing protection on the journey. It's a trek of almost 900 miles, but God's good hand was upon him during all of that. And verse 10, our verse, gives us the reason. And what I want you to notice here are Ezra's resolutions. This this is a biblical pattern, and we find three of them in this verse. And they are here set in the past tense. That's important. Look at the start of verse 10. For Ezra had set his heart to. And then come the three resolutions, which will be our three sub-points under this point, where we're looking at this example of faithfulness as he sets his heart on the Word of God. So firstly, it says he studied the law of the Lord. Secondly, he practiced it. And thirdly, he, te- he taught it. He taught the statutes and ordinances in Israel. But it's remarkable that Ezra had resolved these three things some time ago. We don't know how long ago, but he is still resolved today. That was the moment that I want us to concentrate on. Sometime in his past, that moment that with God's help, he resolved to understand, to obey, and to lead others in the very same disciplines. That's the moment. This is the start. That's the challenge to you this evening. What was Ezra's baseline? First it says, for Ezra has set his heart on three things that fit seamlessly together. There's an order to this. Seek, do, teach. But they run concurrently, and he's an example to each of us. It's not a formula to be saved. That's that's not a way to earn your salvation. If I just read my Bible enough, then I'll obey what I find. And then I'll tell others the same. I'll be saved. No, of course not. No. You find even here in the text that this is not some cold process, but that Ezra's heart is involved. His whole heart. He believes this. He trusts this God. That's why he does these things, because he grasps the magnitude of the preciousness of what he finds, and he applies it to his life, and he believes it so much that he wants others to do the very same thing. So here's the first resolution. Study the Word. Study the Word. And so Ezra's heart has been and remains set on the law of the Lord, therefore he studies it. He is resolved. And the challenge today is to ask if you have that same resolve. He is going to consistently study the Word of God. Here it's called the law of the Lord, referring to those first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's God's revealed Word at that point in history. And so we can legitimately expand this to all of God's Word. God's revealed Word at any point in the history of the world. We must have that same attitude that Scripture contains everything we need, the words of eternal life that aren't found anywhere else. You see, the key truth to grasp here is that the source of the law or the revealed Word is God Himself the creator, the sustainer of the universe, declaring his word to us, telling us reality, 
telling us how to live and die, telling us how to live a life of fruitfulness and faithfulness, pleasing to him. Not long ago, I was asked to step in and teach at Cornerstone University in in Grand Rapids in the required class on the Old Testament, a class that every student has to take, whether they wanted to or not, and some clearly did not. And I did a handful of lessons through Leviticus and the Minor Prophets. And the person who usually taught the class was away, gave me free reign in how to, how to teach. However, he did tell me what exam questions would be on the paper in the sections that I was teaching. And he also said that when you get to an important point that will be on the test, that I could pretty much tell them what it was going to be. And I could see it happen. I would be talking And then I would say something like this, you might want to pay particular attention to this answer or to this chart, and and the room lit up or woke up, maybe, all scribbling down. Why? Because it counted. They knew it was important. They needed to get it right on the test. My friends, Judgment Day is coming. And this is the sole, most precious and valuable resource. This is priceless. This tells you not only how to find God and be saved, but how to live for God, how to fight sin, how to be holy and Christ-like. It tells you why, because God so loved the world. This word deserves your very best attention. And if you've understood and believe what I just said, then why don't you value it? Why don't you read it? Why don't you study it? Don't your actions with God's Word declare how you truly feel about it and value it? It is this God that Ezra has a personal relationship with and love for. And it's the Word from God that he is studying This is not cold academic study we're looking at here. This is Ezra understanding the personal nature of the truths he is studying. This is that his and all his people's lives are dependent on this God, on this God's promises. Over and over, Scripture tells us that works are not enough. Of course, we want to stay 10 million miles away from the heresy of works-based salvation, works-based righteousness. That's the way to death and hell. (coughs) You know, I go to a number of conferences that are filled with professors of theology who see studying this as a career. Ultimately, their fruit shows that they don't believe it's from God. Puritan Samuel Ward, in his book, The Happiness of Practice, said, Of all men, I hold them fools that bend their studies to divinity, to this, not intending to be doers, as well as students and preachers, not much wiser, such as will be professors of religion and not practitioners. The model of how to study the law or the scriptures is is word by word, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, as a whole, asking the right questions that we're teaching our own children in Sunday school right now. What does God say, not what do I think it says? What does God declare? What does God tell me to do? How does this point to Christ? He said all scriptures about him and from him. How does this fit into the plan of redemption? How do I chew on the word and get all the nutrients out of it? Even before we get to applying it in our next point, know it. Study it, but never stop there. Never stop there. And so chapter 7, verse 6 does tell us that Ezra was well-versed in the Scriptures as a result. And studying God's law is wonderful, but it is not enough. My friends, Bible knowledge is no good alone, and that takes us to our second point. So first, we saw that Ezra's heart has been and remains set on the law of the Lord, therefore he studied it. And now secondly, as we consider how to be faithful and fruitful and set our hearts on God's word, practice the word, practice the word. Ezra's heart has been and remains set 
on the law of the Lord, therefore he studies and practices it. Not only does he know the law, but it necessarily is going to result in life transformation. He's asking, how do I apply that which I study personally to my life in every area, in my work, in my marriage as a husband or wife, in my education, in church, when I'm alone, when I raise my children, and it goes on and on. All of the Word applies to all of life. Joshua 1.8 shows this too. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. There's the studying. Now listen. So that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. How do I meditate on it day and night? Well, meditation in the world is very different to meditation in the Word. Meditation in the world involves emptying your head. Biblical meditation fills your head with the truth of God and ruminates on it, applies it. It's transformative. His heart is not just set on knowing the law. It's set or resolved on practicing the law. The point is not whether you study the Word of God only, but with what attitude and approach do you study that Word? How do you study? How do you meditate? Or as Thomas Brooks said, to read much and practice nothing is to hunt much and catch nothing. In that word is something habitual, you see. It's a pattern to practice. Motivated by love and your dedication to your God. This is submission to God's word. Whatever it says, whatever it commands. Not making your own interpretation to fit your lifestyle. It's not looking for loopholes or out of context proof texts to justify your sin. Listen, I work in Christian publishing And I can assure you that you can find books to agree with your disobedience and sin that claim to be Christian. You can find articles and bloggers that will help you justify it, that pretend to be biblical, but clearly are not. Some people are desperate to find anything to scratch that itch. That's not the attitude that Ezra has. He has the attitude of finding what his God says, not arguing with it, but then putting that and only that into practice. This is action coming out of the study. Trusting in the sufficiency and authority and inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture. And all those things put together simply mean that God's Word is true. God's Word is perfect. Always has Always will be. Never add to it. Never take away from it. No. Submit to whatever you find. Obedience to God's Word is evidence of the position of Ezra's heart and of your heart. We obey because we love. It's an outflow of our salvation, never the cause of it. It's an evidence that you have been saved. What if you do find a different pattern in your life? What if you study the Word like Ezra But you know that deep down that love and devotion to Christ, the author, isn't there. Or you find yourself arguing against it, trying to find those loopholes. Examine yourself, Scripture says. Don't don't dismiss that nagging until you know that you are in Christ and devoted to Him and following Him. So Ezra's heart has been and remains set on the law of the Lord. Therefore, he studies and practices it. And then thirdly and finally, as we seek the faithful life with your heart set on God's word like Ezra, teach the word. Teach the word. (coughs) And so we see that Ezra's heart has been and remains set on the law of the Lord. Therefore, he studies and practices and teaches it. You remember that this is not just a physical rebuilding taking place during this period. It's a spiritual rebuilding of the people. And if you like, there are two foundations being built here simultaneously. The foundation of the temple and the city, but more importantly, the foundation in each of their hearts. Without this greater foundation being built, there's there's 
Plainly, no point in building the strongest man-made city or the fanciest temple. It will fall like Babylon, like Assyria. When you study as a believer, when you grow in your prayer life and devotion, when you develop your gifts and mature, God often uses you more fruitfully. His good hand is upon you, like Ezra. Now, in this case, Ezra is a preacher. But I think we can argue from here and other places that this pattern holds, that out of the overflow of a heart filled with Christ, God often works. People can tell if you are close to Christ. They should be able to see your love for Him. They should notice no disconnect in your witness between what you claim to believe and how you practice. As these truths truly do influence the way you act and and think and speak in every sphere of your life, and it's out of that overflow that you can influence and teach and witness to others. Does the equation add up? Or is there a mismatch evident to others between what you say and what you do? When you speak of the truths of God, is there an authenticity? Is there money in the bank to back up the check you are trying to cash? Might be in the home first, teaching those closest to you, your children and grandchildren. Then perhaps in other ministries or at work, at school, and then at church, perhaps you lead a Sunday school or a youth group. Anyone can read the lesson, but if these children really knew you, does the way you live match what you are teaching to them? Some people have a talent to wing it. Did you notice, though, how Ezra's character is mentioned before the fact that he teaches these truths? Practicing the truth comes before teaching the truth. There's no disconnect. There's no place for hypocrisy in the pulpit or in the Sunday school class or in the young people's group or in the counseling session. Ezra is a model teacher, not perfect. A model teacher. He knows that the people need to be brought back to this only fountain that refreshes and satisfies the thirst. They need renewal in the same way that the city needs renewal. And Ezra is sent to restore the rightful position of God's Word among the people. But also in verse 7, he talks about others who are there with him contributing. This is somewhat of a team, and he praises them as well. He believes what he is teaching. He's invested in it. He's proving it by practicing it. I'm sure many of us have experienced those teachers at school who are just in it for the paycheck. Four more years till retirement, and you can tell. That's not the case here. His heart is in this, we're told. And like many since, he understands that the truths found in God's Word have life and death consequences. It's a wonderful exa- There's a wonderful example I want us to look at. And we see here how Ezra teaches the word in Nehemiah chapter 8. When he opened up the law with the people at the the water gate. It's worth turning there with me. Nehemiah chapter 8. See how he does it. Reading those first eight verses and it says this. And all the people gathered as one man at the square which, which was in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding. On the first day of the seventh month, he read from it before the square, which was in front of the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of men and women, Those who could understand and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium which they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Matithiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Maasiah on his right hand. And Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, Hashbadanah, 
Zechariah and Meshullam on his left hand. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Barney, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shebatai, Hodiah, Masiah, Kelita, Azariah, Jozebad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, explained the law to the people. While the people remained in their place, they read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. My friends, Ezra is resolved to study and to practice and to teach. And we see the value that he and the people place on this life-giving word. It starts in private, and then it has the potential to become more and more public as you practice this word. Personal devotion, personal spirituality is so important as the basis in the life that honors God. Whether you aspire to be a faithful parent, or grandparent, or aunt, or uncle, or brother, or sister, or whether you aspire to being a counselor, or a young people's leader, or a street preacher, or do the work of an evangelist, or a missionary, or a Sunday school teacher, to the leadership of the church, wherever you have the solemn yet joyful responsibility of explaining God's word, you must follow the example of our dear brother Ezra. If you are currently teaching the word in any context and you know that there is a disconnect, you've got to be helped. Go to, go to your leadership or another mature Christian you know and trust because these truths are so important. These truths are life and death for you and your listeners. Get it right. Puritan Joseph Hall brings study and practice and teaching together when he says this, those that are all in exhortation, no wit in doctrine, are like them that snuff the candle but pour not in oil. Again, those that are all in doctrine, not in exhortation, drown the wick in oil, but light it not. Making it fit for use, if it had fire put to it. But as it is, rather capable of good than profitable in present. Doctrine without exhortation makes men all brain, no heart. Exhortation without doctrine makes the heart full, leaves the brain empty. Both together make a man. One makes a man wise, the other good. One serves that we may know our duty, the other that we, we may perform it. I will labor in both, he says, but I know not in whether more. Men cannot practice unless they know, and they know in vain if they practice not. And we've seen the resolution of Ezra to study and to do and to spread the word. Ezra's heart has been and remains set on the law of the Lord. Therefore, he studies and practices and teaches it. And so we've seen the past example of unfaithfulness to God with the people of Israel and Judah. But then the contrast of Ezra and his resolve in his faithfulness to God's word. You see, you need to understand that this event here is setting the scene for Jesus Christ, the Messiah. The people are now moving back into the promised land. But here we're only four to five hundred years away from Christ Jesus being born in Bethlehem. Which could not have happened without this repatriation of God's people. But of course, their gracious and sovereign God is in control. These people... Coming back into the land are not all that impressive if you were to look at them with human eyes. But what Ezra does is he draws them back to the Word of God, to the Word of their God. And to do that, he studies himself. He lives it himself. 
His heart is set on it. And at the beginning, we looked at Jonathan Edwards' resolutions. You know, they show something remarkable. But Edwards knew that whatever he did, whatever he achieved, it was all in absolute dependence on God. In fact, at the very start of all the resolutions, he says this, I am, una- I am unable to do anything without God's help. Anything. I wish that fact was as crystal clear to me as a 20-year-old as it is now, 26 years later. Anything you have, anything you achieve, it's all through Christ working in and through you. And Jonathan Edwards carried on that Puritan tradition of bringing all areas of his life under subjection to God. How does he want me to honor him? How do I please him as a wife and a mother, as a husband and a father? How do I please him in worship, in my leisure time, with my thoughts and my words and my actions, in all that I do? See, it's a a state of mind in complete dependence, 24-7, knowing that you are living before the very face of God. Oh, how can I rid myself of remaining sin, and therefore please my Father? How can I please Him today, even in the midst of a sinful world on its way to destruction? How can I taste the sweetness of heaven today? Brothers and sisters, you need this single resolve to please God by living for Him under His Lordship despite what others do, regardless of how you are treated, unbridled, shameless devotion to Him. This is not fake it till you make it Christianity. This is authentic devotion because you love Christ, your personal Savior, your husband, your payment for sin, your substitute. So I challenge you by way of application What are you resolved to do in your life? What are you resolved to do with your life? Is there anything you're aiming for? Or in the words of our verse, what has your heart been set on? What is your heart currently set on? Is it on his word? Is it to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love your neighbor as yourself, or to live for yourself? Is it to practice his word and spread his word? Ezra teaches us that God never gives up on his people, even when they are unfaithful and have been judged as they were in the exile. And there's a continuity here throughout every generation, throughout God's perfectly executed plan of redemption. We can trace the line right to Jesus through this account. He always has a perfect purpose. He never loses sight of of the goal, even if we might. The people at the time only had the promise of the Messiah. We have seen the fulfillment. He guides even when our faith is weak. He never forgets His covenants or His promises. And you therefore need to trust and be single-minded in your relationship to your covenant God, knowing He's sovereign and His good hand directs all things. We, as a separate and and holy people, as the true seed of Abraham, need to worship Him as He prescribes, not how we prefer. You notice what was fixed first, the temple. Worship was restored, not just in the building, but in their hearts. Ezra understands that God's holiness and how and and he sees how the people should reflect that because he sees it in the word of God he's told what to do dependence on God is first not man-built defenses the walls come later but of course this very temple we read of here lasted to the time of Christ and not much beyond pointing to that time when no more sacrifices would be needed at that temple. Because the once and for all sacrifice of the sinless Savior was infallibly scheduled. Now we know the temple and all the sacrifices are no longer needed because of Christ's finished work. Jesus is King above all kings. 
reigning from an eternal, unending throne. His kingdom will never be shaken by any of these foreign powers. His people will never be exiled again. Are you part of that people today? And if you are, are you a healthy soldier? Spiritually fit, fruitful and faithful, studying, practicing and perhaps teaching God's word. What is of first importance? Ezra brings the people the abiding truths of God. They too need to set their hearts on the scriptures and do what they say and then encourage others in the same. It spreads and spreads. He shows us that God's word is or should be central to our lives as our only authority. But when you take such a stand, there's often opposition, there's often resistance. And sometimes from our perspective, it looks like a few steps backwards, but not from the eternal perspective. You need to rest in God's unchanging plan. But we're told all of this through his word, and you need to have the same trust in it that Ezra did. The pages of the law are where you look for your help. Maybe that's what you need today. To come back to the truths that are of most importance, a serious recommitment of faithfulness to God. We see the result in verse 9. The direct result of this, is, this commitment is that the good hand of the Lord was upon him. My friends, Ezra brings us a picture of spiritual renewal. Jerusalem was ruined. The people were backslidden, but restoration was, was happening. But as we've hinted, God was about to do something amazing, miraculous. Right here, just a few centuries later on that very same patch of ground, he brought eternal restoration. In and through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, the cross and the empty tomb, that's the message that Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 tells us is of first importance. Is Christ yours? If not, flee to him. If Christ is yours, like Ezra, set your heart on him and on his word. Love his teaching, value and treasure scripture. Study it, don't stop there. Meditate on it, practice it, apply it and spread it. Grow in and through it. My friend, be fruitful. Be faithful and with God's help, be resolved to follow him fully. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how we thank you for your word. How we thank you for the comfort that we find in it when we consider your faithfulness to us, your imperfect people. We thank you for the finished and complete work of Christ. We thank you for the certainty of salvation for those of us who have believed, those of us who have come in repentance and faith. And we pray, Lord, that you'll help us to be resolved to study and to practice and to spread your word, and that we might see others do the same through using us as a means for that benefit. Oh, Lord, we cry out for any here this night who do not know you as Lord and Savior, that in your mercy you would reach down and save yet another lost sinner. Show mercy, we pray. May you be glorified through that. In Jesus' precious and worthy name. Amen.